So one thing Jesus never did was to kind of hide the cost of what it would mean to follow him. Over the last few weeks, we've been digging into John 13 through 15, the teachings of Jesus as he is speaking to his disciples. And in, that, in those moments, he is preparing them. He is laying the groundwork for some very difficult times that they will experience. They're going to walk through times of uncertainty and confusion. What I love about the passages that we've been looking at on these Sunday mornings is that Jesus never assumed it would take perfect conditions to be his follower. He actually assumed it would be very, very difficult. And the conditions would be very challenging. And in the passage I want us to look at today, I want you to listen to how Jesus anticipated that the first followers of his would actually not be liked. They would not be appreciated. They would face opposition and persecution simply because they were following him. He wanted to prepare them for that. So I want you to listen for that theme as Jamie Kazalka reads from John 15, beginning in verse 18. John 15, 18 through 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. You know, throughout most of John 14 and 15, as I imagine it, you can almost hear like the soft, pleasant background music as Jesus is unpacking themes of encouragement to his disciples. Just like Donna and Rob just reminded us, and they, thank you so much, guys, for the sermon review that you did. It was excellent, and you were listening, so I'm grateful for that. Jesus talked about bearing fruit, like your life being rich and full and productive, and you can kind of hear uh, encouraging sounds in that. And Jesus talked about resting, abiding, making your home in his love. All that sounds so pleasant, but then this passage we heard Jamie read a moment ago takes a turn. It almost seems like Jesus is bringing up some impossible circumstances to bear fruit, have a rich, productive life, some impossible circumstances to make your home at his love, or at least it'd be very difficult. Did you hear it in verse 17? Jesus brings in the real potentiality that if the world hates you, So you have to figure out quickly, like, what is the world? Because the world has different meanings in scripture. And here, the way Jesus is talking about it, he's talking about that system where the values, the beliefs, the morals 
are actually very distinct from God and actually aligned against God. That's the world that he's talking about. And actually the world, that world is filled with people. So Jesus recognizes that there are going to be people who are going to align themselves against God and will have no time for his followers. So could Jesus have envisioned, could Jesus have envisioned you in high school, middle school, trying to be his follower, trying to be his disciples? Could he have envisioned some of his followers going into offices where Jesus isn't loved or treasured by a long shot? Could Jesus have envisioned the the believer who is on the road at a a conference or at a trade show and, and everybody seems to be not interested in holding on to any morals whatsoever and just living for the moment, living for themselves. And because you don't, because you have a relationship with Jesus, you don't participate. Could he have envisioned you at that moment and the opposition you might receive? Could he, have, could he have envisioned those who are living out their faith on a college campus where it's pretty dark with sin and roommates are hostile? Could he have imagined, and I would imagine there are some, some people even watching this right now where you're at a place where you are surrounded by unbelievers, maybe even in your home. And you feel the pressure and the hostility and nobody, nobody believes like you believe. And, and if they were really honest, they may express they, they don't like what you believe. Now, Jesus, I think, envisions all of that. They're really challenging circumstances. And part of Jesus's care for you, for us, is to remind us we're not at a theme park with all kinds of diversions and distractions, amusements where we, you know, like real world problems. We don't have to think about those today. Jesus tells us that's not where you're living. Part of Jesus's care for us is to remind us that the Christian life isn't like a big pep rally from the world saying, you can live for Jesus, you can do this. It's not as if like you're the kid showing grandma your artwork and she goes, oh, I'm so proud of you. This is wonderful. This is the best thing I've ever, it's not like that. It's not like that. And Jesus is preparing us. We can expect not to be liked by everyone. I think I I do want to make sure we acknowledge something right out of the gate. And that is there are times where people, by people, I mean like even people like us, like me, who identify as Jesus' followers don't act like it. And so the world sees us when we are immoral or greedy or controlled by materialism. The world sees when we are bitter and we're hypocrites. The world sees us when we can be prejudiced. The world sees us when we're arrogant and we're judgmental. And so there could be reasons why the world treats us poorly, even even hates us. And it actually might be justified because of our actions. This is exactly what 1 Peter 2 is talking about. And I just think we need to recognize this. 1 Peter 2 says, if you sin and you're punished for it, well, then don't, don't go bringing Jesus into that. You've gotten your punishment justly. Actually, but in John 15, I don't think that's where he's going. Let's rightly assume Jesus isn't talking about that scenario. He's talking about something different. And and let's recognize Jesus knows the heart so well. He knows something happens to us when we are opposed, when we are hated. The heart does different things. Different ones of us respond differently when someone expresses their displeasure with us or pushes against us. So there's one response. And I think one end of responses would be kind of the, the look in kind of approach where the opposition to us would make make us fearful. Like, did I do something wrong? I, I, didn't, 
I didn't expect to be dealing with this because I follow Jesus and we doubt we become overly introspective. We become insecure. We're worried. We're anxious. We, it makes sense that we could easily fall into the look-in approach. What would I do wrong to, to, to have this in my life? But if there's the look-in approach at the other pole, I think there's the lash-out approach. And that approach is any sort of opposition brings out the worst reflexes. And you go, you know, if the world hates me, I'm going to hate them back because they're pure evil and losers anyway. And so I'm going to lash out. And Jesus did not intend these words to galvanize such an emotionally angry response. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't cause anywhere in scripture to get worked up about everything as often as we can. So what is the response? It mattered to Jesus that followers of his would anticipate some negative, negative reaction to what it means to follow him. So what is the response? And he starts right here helping us navigate that opposition that we might face. Here's the key to the mindset. Here's, here's, the, here's the key mindset that we must have. It's a firm grasp on the fact that it's really not about you. I think that's what Jesus, that's underlying everything this morning. It's really not about you. We're tempted to make it all about us. Uh, unfortunately, most of my life, I'm thinking about how does this affect me? What about me? What about me? What, this is the way we live. And Jesus says, this opposition you might be facing, actually, first and foremost, you need to know, it's not really about you. What you likely will experience at some point in your life in walking with Jesus is not primarily about you. It's actually primarily because Jesus is saying, you're following me. You follow me. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, you can know that it has hated me before it hated you. Or look at verse 20. Remember the word that I told you. Okay, so there's a precedent. It hated me before it hated you. And notice I taught you about this. They remember the word that I said to you. A servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, well, they're going to persecute you. You are following me. So you can look at what has happened to me. I'm the master. Jesus is saying, look at how the religious and the irreligious treated me. Look at how even the political parties of the time. So if you have some of the parties would be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were religious, but they were also had a lot of politics going on. Actually, both of them, they, they were, couldn't agree on anything, could agree on this. They, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like the values. So when I think of a person who is facing some intense pressure because of their commitment to have a genuine faith that is wrapped around Jesus, when I think of that person at school or at home or at work, Jesus is saying, I identify with you. This isn't foreign territory to me. I walked this road before you did. When we face opposition, we may be tempted to think, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. Even just saying those words. I think I've said that a lot the last two months. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this. And part of me wants to say, you know, when I, when I get opposed, I, I didn't sign up for this. And Jesus in his kindness gently corrects me. Going, Actually, that's exactly what you sign up for when you follow me. Where Jesus' followers go, people receive that message with joy, but they also sometimes push back. Uh, it's happening right now in our world. It's happened all throughout church history. It happened in the, with the first followers of Jesus. You can read about it in the book of Acts. It happened with Jesus himself. Are there, are there other reasons that, and, and other factors that we can consider when we face this opposition? Well, absolutely. Jesus is going to tell us what you likely will experience at some point is not primarily about you. It's actually because 
you are not only following me, you are from me. I, I am your source. I am your origin. I am your identity. Look at verse 19 in John 15. It says, if you were of the world, if you were like from the world, if that was your origin, well, the world will love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, yet that's not your origin. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Jesus says, you are not only following me, you are from me. You're not the same. I chose you. And the moment I chose you, everything got transformed in your life. John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, the way he describes it, the comparison he says, is that it is being born again, being born from above, being born anew. You are reborn. And that new birth came when Jesus chose us out of this world even as we have to live in this world, we pass from death to life, the, main, the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, from slavery and bondage to redemption and freedom. We are from Jesus, prepare to be misunderstood. Another analogy may help. It's like you go to different parts of our country and sometimes you hear different accents and sometimes those accents are so strong. It's like, what did you say again? I don't think I quite picked up everything. What was that again? Almost as if when we talk, we have such a different accent that just, yeah, prepare to be misunderstood as Christians. The world will likely not get you. You have a very different origin and identity. Your life is shaped very differently. The world has a different set of values and beliefs and morals. So God's nature being worked out you in you is one of mercy. That's your identity. But the world hears that and says, wait a minute, mercy? Are, are you seriously saying you have to show me mercy? Someone has to show me, was I so bad that you had to show me mercy? I don't, I don't think I was. Our whole identity as followers of Jesus is we are, we're even called holy people. Yet when we talk about holiness, a world that is aligned against God says, you mean I don't meet the standard that God has? Okay, I guess I'm not one of those people. When at the core of God's love for us and I, our identity is his rescue of us. But my goodness, if you think I wasn't that bad on my own, I, I, I don't know that I even really needed a rescue. You see how differently aligned you are if your whole worldview is that, the heart that Jesus gives us for the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized what if, your, what if your opinion is, you know, the weak are weak for a reason. And I don't have to care about them. You see how differently we're shaped because of who Jesus is. Being chosen by Jesus out of this world means that we have a conviction that every person has been made in the image of God. But if we, if we disregard what Jesus has to say about that, then we think, well, actually, I'm better because of where I was born, because of my ethnicity, because of my class, because of my education. I'm just better than other people. You see how Jesus is taking us. You hear the difference. If you're a Christian and you're facing some slights or hostility, there is a reason. You're following him. You are from Jesus. We have an origin and identity difference from the world. Uh, can, can we appreciate why one writer put it this way? In this world, those who follow Jesus Christ never find a permanent home. We find peace with God through Christ and there's rest for the weary and burdened, but the gospel does not lead us into a settled life of contented ease. This has always been true of God's family. 
followers of Jesus, you've been called out of the world and you can be prepared to have a world who you are at odds with. At the core, it's really not about you. Specifically, Jesus says, you're following me and you are from me. But he actually even goes one layer deeper than that. What he says is, what's happening here is not only that the world hates me, but these image bearers that God deeply loves for God so loved the world, they actually are turning their back, not just on me, Jesus says, but actually on the heavenly father. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 of John 15 says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they don't know him who sent me. That's the heavenly father. And you can even see it in verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father also. I don't think Jesus had like this big chip on his shoulder as he's saying this. And we shouldn't either. What Jesus is not trying to do is to have this inflaming political rhetoric just to get everybody all worked up, polarizing everybody so he can then capitalize on. No, no, we're in an age where like saying or tweeting or posting the most outrageous thing you can think of gets you a lot of attention. Jesus is not doing that, okay? Jesus isn't saying if they hated me, they hate the father. No, what he's telling us, he, he doesn't deal in that currency. What he's telling us is that God the Father had this comprehensive plan of rescuing the world, of showing his love for us by saving us, by being victorious over all the evil forces of darkness and sin and rebellion. And this plan that the Father had, our Heavenly Father had, involves Jesus coming into this world just as John the Baptist identified him. and says, there's the Lamb of God. And he takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus, following this plan of the Father, died on the cross to atone for our sins. And rising again, he defeated every evil force that might ruin our lives. And the father in his love is bringing that reality to the world, even still today. And yet, if you say, well, you know, I don't, I don't actually care for that story. That truth is not that compelling to me. And you say, I know that you say that's the heavenly father story, but I don't like that story. So I, I don't care for you. I don't care for Jesus. And I don't care for the father. If, if you like to do things your way, that story of God doing everything for his glory doesn't really ring your bell. If you think life entitles you to what one person said is unrestricted selfishness and unlimited pride. If you think I'm entitled to that because I'm here and I'm me, then anyone who brings like Jesus did a story of self-denial and humility, you just don't have time for it. Jesus is saying the world doesn't buy into my message but that's actually because they don't really believe in my heavenly father either. It's one of the real challenges I have with uh, interfaith efforts. We ought to live peaceably with everybody, people of every, every different religion. I, I understand that. But often the thought is on these interfaith gatherings, yeah, we just all come together and we're praying to some conception of God. Just make one up. And we'll just all come together to our own versions of God because they're all basically the same thing. And Jesus just never talked like that. He never talked like that. When Jesus shows up, there's just overwhelming, overflowing sense of grace and peace. Like Jesus is on the scene, even when he's born, right? Good news, great joy, which will be for all the people. People worship and celebrate. And when Jesus shows up, arrives on the scene, even when he's born, people want to kill him. Herod wanted to kill him. People wanted to stone him. People were so frustrated with his message, people would betray and mock and stumble over his words and get frustrated. And Jesus knew this. It's not as if his followers centuries later 
have taken Jesus's teachings to an extreme and, and drawn these arbitrary theological lines. That's not the way it's worked. Jesus knew even right here, there are gonna be those that just don't like what I'm saying. Specifically, when Jesus is present and speaking, here's what happened. People didn't always have like this 100% affirmation of, you know, whatever I think, whatever I think is right, however I want to live my life, whatever lifestyle I want to choose, Jesus is like totally okay with that. That was never, that was never what Jesus expected. That's never what Jesus' words did. Actually, the presence of the words of Jesus, I, I know this is like a hard truth, but the presence of the words of Jesus actually brought a realization of guilt and sin without excuse. Say, really, Curtis? The words of Jesus? Because I like to think of Jesus. Well, well, let's read. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, then they wouldn't have been guilty of sin. I'm, I'm taking that to mean they wouldn't have had this unmistakable awareness of their guilt. But actually now they have no excuse for their sin. When Jesus says, when I came and started talking, there's something when you encounter someone so holy that it just inevitably brings guilt. But there's also, inevitably, it could bring grace too. So Jesus would speak and Nicodemus would know he didn't have enough to be right with God. And it was words of grace to him when Jesus said, you, you've got to be born again. And the woman at the well would know of her sexual sin. Yet the words of Jesus that were Convicting were also filled with grace. There's hope for her. That there are these moments, even the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Jesus could say, leave your life of sin, but I don't condemn you. So, so there's this perfect good news that is coming their way, but the good news also seemed like bad news to some who are smug and self-satisfied and self-righteous. Well, you think I'm not good enough? When Jesus says, come to me, it's not good news for the person who thinks, I'm not a sinner. How dare you talk to me like that? You think I need a saving Jesus? I don't need that. I don't need you to be that kind of savior. You know what, Jesus, what I need is power and control and approval. I need my world to be just like I want it. And if you can't deliver that, then frankly, I don't have much use for you, especially if you make me feel guilty. Do you hear the difference? I want to make sure we understand what happens when Jesus speaks, but also when Jesus is present and powerfully at work, there's also something else that happens. The presence of even Jesus's unique, loving actions actually leads to guilt and sin and excuses as well. I mean, look at verse 24. He says, if I hadn't done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. Jesus, are, are, you, are you serious? So you do good loving works that no one on the history of this planet has ever been able to do. And you're saying people actually hate you? Could someone really look at a work of compassion and power and push back on what Jesus said? Actually, we know it happened because of passages like John 6, where Jesus fed 5,000 hungry people. And by the end of the day, people are walking away, following him no more because they don't want him to be the center of the universe like he's claiming to be. We know it happened because Jesus heals Lazarus in John 11. And we're told shortly after that, people are trying to kill him because a Jesus who can't raise the dead is a lot easier to manage. 
We know this because Jesus washes feet in John 13. And a person who he washed their feet, Judas, goes out and betrays him. Maybe thinking, I don't need Jesus to be humble. What I need him is to overthrow Rome. That's what I need. Jesus does works no one else did. He speaks like no one else did. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And people mock him for doing that. So we we have to definitely process this. How, How can we stare down such love and mercy, compassion, goodness, strength, holiness, care? How can we stare that down? There's only one conclusion, and that is our own sin, our own egotism, my own stubbornness, my pride. Even when I know I'm in the wrong, I still will want to justify and cover up and blame shift and say, it's not my fault. It's not really my fault. Someone else. It's not that bad. I want to shoot really straight with you. And that is the presence of Jesus can bring some really serious conviction of sin, which is terribly uncomfortable, terribly uncomfortable. And it might be doing that in your life right now. Yet I I don't want you to stop there because I want you to realize the presence of Jesus also brings a real offer of hope and life and peace and truth. And some of you watching this may have never really come to grips that there is a way to experience both conviction and grace at the same time. Maybe you didn't even know that was possible. You might have tried to avoid that conviction altogether. But today you've begun to face up to who you are without Jesus. And you also see there's a better story than the one I've been trying to live. And the better story involves Jesus. It's a truer story. And as you take a step toward Jesus today, you're not watching this by accident. You didn't put this up on your screen by accident. It is the loving heart of God that can work deep into conviction and then also at the same time remind you of how much you are loved. And if you need to talk to someone about that, would you please, please reach out? We'd love to have that conversation. Jesus looks at his followers in an upper room and he tells them, listen, you're going to be opposed and this is not about you. It's not really about you first and foremost. That's such heavy news. So where's the hope in any of that? Where's good news in any of this? I actually think Jesus ends this passage, verse 26 and 27. I think he gives us lots of good news as we're told to remember something. If the world comes after you because you're my follower, in verse 25, he says, the word that is written in their law had to be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. I actually think in the midst of all this, you can see God has a bigger plan. You can see the bigger plan. The law was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Now it's being fulfilled. Doesn't necessarily make it all easy, but it's a counterweight. God is working out his will. None of this caught him by surprise. This was expected. It isn't the end of you. It's not the end of Christianity. God can work in and through this. God has a plan. You say, yeah, I understand God has a plan, but I feel so alone and I need help. And Jesus says, and yes, in verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I'm going to send you from the father, the spirit of truth, who comes from the father, he will bear witness about me. Not only can you see a bigger plan, but you have a helper. Remember, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, the helper. I knew you needed help. That's why I am sending him to you. And he comes with the full power of the Father to work in you. And one of the things that this helper will do, the Holy Spirit will do inside of you, is actually orient your whole life toward me. He'll produce my character in you. You will live a life that is like all about Jesus. 
as you're following him, as he's giving you help, you have a helper. One more thing. And you also, in verse 27, you're also gonna bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You can not only like hunker down, you can move out in mission. You have been given a message, even if you're hated. Is it complicated? Surely it's complicated because you can't just like sit this one out and hide out. Is it complicated? Well, sure it's complicated because you're told to love your enemies. You can't just hate them back. Well, yeah, it's complicated, but you still have a mission. And the mission is clear. Be a witness, bear witness. And if you paid attention during Bite Size, which I'm sure you did, you heard Donna and Rob explain this so well, reminding us we got to ask ourselves some questions. Bearing a witness, that can make us ask some great questions like, who is Jesus? And what did Jesus do? And who am I going to bear witness to? Who am I going to tell about who Jesus is and what he came to do? You know, when I come to the next book of the Bible from John, it's the book of Acts. It's the record of the disciples doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. You know what I don't find? I don't find bitter, angry disciples, even though they are oppressed and persecuted. They face opposition. They're actually hated. And they're eager to tell the story of of Jesus to people who hate them. They don't let the foot off the gas at all in fear. They aren't trying to be liked at all, but they are trying to love and extend Jesus' love to the world. And frankly, I think that's exactly where we can be today. We can rest completely in Jesus, making ourselves at home in his love, drawing a life from him and bearing witness to who he is and what he's done, not just for us, but for the whole world. Can we ask for the Lord's help in that? Let me pray. Our father, give us strength as we hear these words to believe them. I pray this would stir us to hope, move us to love this world, to love our neighbors, to love even our enemies. I pray for the person that this is not theoretical or hypothetical. This is reality. They actually are facing some intense opposition. Lord, I feel so limited in what I can do, but you are not limited by my limitations. So I pray that you would work and encourage even by this passage today, that you would give hope and help. I pray that you would watch over your followers and we ask it in Christ's name.